Well, good morning. It's good to see you. You all right? Oh, I love me some Huntington Beach. Come on. Ocean View High School right here. Anybody? That's what I'm talking about. The Harvard of HB. Huh? Right. Whatever. It's probably telling that it's down the street from Golden West College, but that's all right. It's all right. We're, we're good. I, uh, uh, yeah, I grew up here. Let me tell you something about your, your pastor. Do you love that guy right there? Me too. That's a good, that is a, you know what's fun to see is when you see the people who are close to someone, because then you kind of get the truth about them, right? You know what I'm talking about? You just watch those people and they're like, every, when he walks in, the people that he leaves, the people he's with, they listen, they're attentive because, because they believe in you and who you are, what you're doing. I love that. Even talking to Hillary just a minute ago, I said, what is it that you love about your husband? And uh, she said, you know what, he's just steady, he's gentle, he's kind, he's, I love that, I love that. And you know that, right? And Mariner's Church, long history with Mariner's Church. We, um, 25 years ago, uh, I started at South Coast Community Church, which was in Irvine. Uh, Doug Fields, who's spoken here before, you know Doug? He's a good friend of mine, he's at my wedding and so uh, he hired me and we, uh, I was uh, working with high school students back in the day and so... Uh, had a long time, loved and journeyed with Mariners, and then, as Kayla mentioned, went and planted or pastored a church in Costa Mesa for a while, and just grateful to be here now with you. So with HB and growing up here, I spent a lot of time in this park. I remember my brother broke his collarbone just down the hill, and we were riding skateboards down the hill down here, and we used to, not that it matters to you, but we used to skip turtles on the pond that used to be in here. You say, skip turtles, yes, the little quarter-sized turtles, we found that those worked quite well. I know, I'm not suggesting you do it, I'm saying we did it, and it was fun. Uh, so, anyway, I have three girls, my wife's name is Julie, if there's a picture of them on the screen, it's only to show that I married way out of my league, and she is awesome. So, you've been talking about some things over this Christmas season, haven't you? You've been talking about peace and hope. What else? Joy. Joy? Yeah. During the season of Advent, there's one more, you know, there's one more uh, idea that comes to the surface that is pretty common in this season, and that's love. I want to think with you about love for a few minutes. I want to talk with you about love. And I thought about this for a long time. And I thought, you know, if we're going to talk about love, we ought to talk about something that at least we all love, right? And it's a good place for us to kind of think and frame our conversation. So I thought I'd just have a little conversation with you about food and meals. Anybody? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Go get some donuts out in the lobby there if you get hungry halfway through. But the, um, the, this idea of love in, in, the, in the Scripture, in the Bible is often laced around food and meals. The cover story this month of um, National Geographic magazine is The Joy of Food. It talks about bringing family and friends together. And it's kind of a global snapshot of what happens when people get together for meals in different places in the world. It talks about the, how community is developed and how uh, the economy is sustained and how generations hand off traditions and legacy. It's, it's a place where community is built, where relationships are established and fortified, and it talks about the power of food, the art of it, all of it, and how the world, in, no matter where you go, is passionate about food and meals. 
And this idea is, is, a, is a powerful one because in your life, you could probably make that same association. You know, oh, man, yeah, food is powerful. We have to underestimate it. All I need to do in this room, if there are any old school locals, is say the word noggles, and you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> oh, can I have an amen? Some of you are about to jump up right now. Yeah, okay, right. Right. We used to head over to Noggles over there at the Fountain, Fountain Valley Fun Center. At least that's what we call it, right? It's boomers now, I guess. <laughs> but it was Noggles. And so we used to go over there and have meals. I can remember a memorable meal, maybe one of the most memorable meals of my life, was uh, when I was, uh, was married. We, Julie and I, we were married, and we uh, then had our reception down at the Ritz-Carlton in, in Dana Point. It was a gift. It was very nice. It was far more than, you know, extravagant than I could ever conceive of. Uh, so, you know, I showed up in my Toyota pickup truck, and I thought, this would be good right here. And, uh, and uh, we had this big banquet with all kinds of people there, and, you know, lots of people came to the banquet. And uh, Julie and I, you know, were going around from table to table after the wedding, and it turns out that after the, we did, by the time the thing was over, we did not get one bite of food at this huge banquet in, in our honor. <laughs> so, but uh, there's, did you, is there a photo of that right there? No? Did you get it? Yeah, so there's the, and then if you look right behind that, that close-up shot right there, you see that in the back right there? That is the first photo bomb in history, and that is me and Doug Fields uh, in the back. So you can tell Doug right there that I saw that you were part of, part of the first photo bomb. So anyway, after the wedding, uh, you know, we were exhausted and tired, and, uh, and we, uh, and we, we had no money, and we're at the Ritz-Carlton, like a, you know, a bowl of peanuts was $16, and I'm thinking, that would buy, you know, like nine air fresheners for my truck, and I thought, I'm not going to do that. And so um, we decided that we'd get in the little truck, and just up Crown Valley, just up the way, there is a, a, a Taco Bell that's there. So on our wedding night, my wife and I are there uh, having Taco Bell at about 1 o'clock in the morning, and it was so beautiful and cool. And so on our 25th anniversary, I was talking to my girls. I said, what should we do? And I thought, oh, I know what we're going to do. So we loaded up the car with all of our finest china, and we brought it down to Taco Bell on Crown Valley. <laughs> and we spread it out, and we had fine china and candlelit and tablecloth and real silver. Not that we used it because we unwrapped and ate tacos, but we had... We had it right there in the Taco Bell, and then from there we went and we took pictures down at, uh, down at the uh, Ritz-Carlton after that, 25 years later. So those are memorable meals. They stick with us. We, we think, oh, how fun was that? What? They involve story. They involve people. They involve ideas, life, moments, huge transitional moments, and the same is true in Scripture. You would be hard-pressed if you tried to overstate the importance, the significance of meals and food in the Bible. It's everywhere, from beginning to end, from one end to the other. That seems to be the thread that almost holds the whole thing together. In the beginning, you have a feast. The, one of the, the opening scene, cue, cue, cue the players. Curtain goes up on creation. Music plays. There's a woman walking in the garden. You know the story? Even if you've never been in church before, you've probably heard this. It's maybe one of the things you struggle with, where you go, oh, that's why I don't believe. Okay, well, fine. But the story is, and it's a way of helping us understand what, what, is, what we were made for, which is love. What we were made by, which is love. What we were called to, which is love. And there's this woman walking in the garden. Her name is Eve, and she walks by this tree, a tree that is put in the garden, along with lots of other trees, with food. 
to be sustained as a symbol of love, of invitation, of eat and enjoy and experience and taste and feel and be nourished. There was one tree in the garden. God said, well, just don't touch this tree. I mean, just leave that one alone. That's, that's my business. And, and maybe it was a way of God saying, look, the only thing I would ever ask is that you would trust me. And so it's just a symbol of trust. Will you trust me? Eve's walking through the garden one day, and there's a serpent on the tree, right? So why don't you take some of this? If you eat some of this, you'll know what God knows. She thinks, that sounds pretty good. She picks some of that fruit, took a bite right there. The story changes all of a sudden. The music stops. Curtain falls. Darkness enters the world. What happened? I mean, I think about that tree. I mean, goodness sakes, maybe the fruit, it was the fruit that looked so good. I don't know. Why didn't they make, uh, why didn't God make, if I, God can do anything, why didn't he make a, a little tree, with, why didn't he make a tree with the, the little circus peanuts? No one would have touched it, right? You know what I'm talking about? The circus peanuts, like the, the, the sugary styrofoam yeah, 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 packing material that they hawk off during, you know what I'm talking about? It's nasty. Why not a casserole tree? No one wants a casserole, right? No, some kind of fruit that we can't resist. Great, thank you. There we are. So... First meal ends in disaster. And from then on, God's tried to establish meals that would reconcile all of creation, that would invite us back, that would give us a front seat at the table, the seat of honor at this table of feasting of love, because that's what we were made for. That's what we were called to. And so you trace the thread through Scripture of meals and people being together and God pursuing people with love, and he's always inviting people to meals. You see, Abraham, God says, I'm going to start a people that I can really love on. He shows up with Abraham. He says, let's have a meal and talk about the future. And as they're talking about the future, God says, I'm going to do something great through you. There's going to be nations of people that I will raise up to love and to be with, and I will be their God. And they will be my people. And the story sort of changes right there. God's coming after people. The story of Scripture is one where people are always in and out of trust and relationship with God. So unlike our world, right? <laughs> right. We all struggle. It's the story of the Bible. It's our story. And so although God shows up and God is present and full of promise and love, people drift. People become slaves. God delivers them from their slavery through Moses. And what does he give them at the end of their ordeal? He gives them a feast to remember what's happened, the Passover feast. He makes symbolic what was painful. He redeems that which was, were signs of their toil and oppression. And he says, remember, every single year, I redeemed you, I brought you, I loved you, I freed you, I made you whole. It's a love story. It's a love story. All the way through the scriptures, the meals, there are feast days that God institutes in the nation of Israel. He says, come together and feast and remember and enjoy and give thanks. And then there is this moment where you continue to see the story unfold in the life of people, lives of people like David. David. First time we see King David in the Old Testament, he's bringing his brother cheese for lunch. Then later on, he becomes a king. David writes the words. He said, remember in Psalm 23, you prepare a table in front of me, a table before me in front of my enemies. You think about that. What is David saying? He's saying, when my enemies oppress me, and when enemies come, we lose our appetite. 
We lose our strength. We lose our courage. We lose our ability to sort of taste and experience in fullness. And David says, it is unbelievably profound that in the presence of my enemies, when they are present, when they are around, when they are at the table, fear and doubt and envy and rage and deceit and all of them, they're at the table. David says, you prepare a meal for me right there. What kind of a God does that? A God of love who keeps showing up. Keep going with the story. It just goes on and on. There's Daniel. And then you come to the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus. Jesus comes onto the scene. Mary, Jesus' mother, is told that she's going to be pregnant with the Savior of the world. And all of the while, since people have been separated from God, they have desired to experience God. And to see him come near and close in a powerful way. And just as people are about to lose hope, Mary gets this promise that the Savior's coming. Coming in the person of Jesus. And in and through the person of Jesus, there is a Savior. It's God with us. Emmanuel, the scriptures say. And Mary, when she hears the news, she's pregnant. She sings this song of thanks and praise. She says, Uh, She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices with God, my Savior. And later on in that, uh, uh, in in Luke chapter 1, she says this. I'm talking about Jesus, and it's like, and he fills the hungry with good things. Boy, she's speaking to all of history. She's speaking out into the future. She knows that what's common to us is what's common in us, a hunger, a hunger to be loved, a hunger to be known, a spiritual hunger that we all journey through this life with. And so Jesus shows up, and he sort of initiates what it looks like when God shows up. And Jesus in his ministry is radically inclusive. I mean, all over the place. Radically and ultimately, unbelievably inclusive and loving of people who you would think least expect it. Jesus' first miracle, he shows up and he makes, uh, he shows up at a wedding and his mom shows up. And she says, Jesus, we're out of wine and you do not say no to a Jewish mother, right? I've got some friends who are Jewish. They're like, that's right, that's right, you don't. Jesus says, all right, all right. So he makes, he makes wine. Not only wine, he makes good wine. First miracle. It indicates that maybe he's come for the feast. I mean, ultimately for the feast. You see Jesus showing up in all kinds of occasions, all kinds of places. He feeds 5,000 people on a hillside, right? People decide that they're going to follow Jesus, and they throw parties just to celebrate their new arrival into the kind of love that he offers. Powerful story. There's a story uh, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Luke that Luke tells. There's a woman uh, and there's a man. There's a man named Simon, and he's a religious leader. Jesus comes to his house for a meal. He's probably very wealthy. He's established in the community. When Jesus shows up, uh, Simon does not extend to Jesus any signs of hospitality. I mean real hospitality. He just sort of takes the fact that Jesus is there for granted. And this woman shows up unannounced and just bursts onto the scene, into this wealthy religious leader's home. And in Jesus' day, that didn't happen. And this woman, as she's breaking in, she's holding a jar, and she falls down at Jesus' feet, and she begins to 
to take what's in that jar and just to put that on Jesus' head. It's, a, it's fragrant. It, it's, a, it's something called nard. It was a way of sort of investing your money. It was a way of saying, this is what I have, and this is something that will last through maybe uncertain economic times. It was like, in the day of Jesus, fabric or gold, which not a whole lot of people had, but this, this precious you know, ointment, this beautiful fragrance, and she was taking and saying, here's all I am. Here's everything that I have, and I'm putting it. And she's washing Jesus' feet with her tears and drying his feet with her hair. Why is she doing this? Because she has seen and understood somewhere that Jesus has come to love. She's probably been a prostitute. She's in the home of this religious man as an uninvited guest, but she cannot help it. Sometimes we are so hungry and so compelled by love that nothing will stop it. And here's this woman. And Simon, this religious leader, says, if Jesus, if you knew, he's thinking to himself, if you knew who were touching you, you, would, you wouldn't even allow her. Jesus says, hey, let me ask you something. When I came into your house, Simon, you didn't give me oil for my head. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't give me anything. You didn't give me anything. Nothing of the sign of hospitality. And she, and, since she entered, presented what was most valuable out of love. All the way through the scriptures, you see it again and again. Jesus, when he goes to the cross as Savior for the world, he goes to the cross, and in the power of life, satisfy everything that draws breath. God raises him up. And then he's with his followers, his closest followers before he leaves. And he says, let me do something with you before I leave. I'm going to give you a meal to remember me by. And he renames the Passover. We call it communion, the Eucharist, whatever. But it's an idea of remembering what God has done in Jesus. And then all the way through, even Peter, who's had a hard time, denied Jesus three times at the crucifixion. Jesus shows up on the beach to reinstate him with a meal. You get the idea, right? All the way through to the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, the whole last scene is depicted as a feast. So what does this mean? In the scriptures, it says this when it talks about the arrival of Jesus. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, the, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, which is Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is a Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Here's a question for you. You think about Jesus, you think about meals, you think about love, you think about what we've talked about. And think about that scripture. Let me ask you a question. What is a manger? Do you know what a manger is? It's a feeding trough. It's where you would put grain or whatever you were trying to feed someone with, the animals with, so they could eat. Is it even coincidence that Jesus, who calls himself the bread of life, 
the one who has pursued humanity throughout creation to feed them and speak to hunger would be placed symbolically in a place where people could eat. And it's also interesting, or noteworthy at least, to think the word of Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means? The, the town did, Jesus was born. The, the town Bethlehem literally means house of bread. I know, huh? I know. And it says, uh, when the angels had left these shepherds after making this announcement and gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. Why'd they hurry off? The shepherds were kind of the underbelly of society. And the fact that God would show up with an announcement, an invitation for them saying, a Savior has been born to you. It was the wildest thing they could have imagined. You give it to us, for us, with us. We're invited to this feast, to this celebration, and they ran off. They couldn't, they couldn't even help themselves. There they go. Of course, of course. Just like our own souls, when we know and recognize that we can be loved, we were not only created for it, we were called to it. And God shows up to love us. And that's it. That's it. As we're thinking about today, as we're thinking about this experience, this journey, in your own heart, recognize what it is in you that's hungry for love. Do you know what it is? I'm sure you do. I mean, if you're given you know, an opportunity to, to think about your life. And often when I'm hungry, I'll eat really poorly. I don't know about you. I mean, the hungrier I am, the more you know, vulnerable I am. So if I'm really hungry, everything starts to look like a raspberry zinger, right? And I will just eat. Like, it doesn't, I will pay no mind to what's in front of me. It doesn't matter. Sometimes when we are hungry like that, we make bad choices. And sometimes out of our hunger in this life, we end up sort of pursuing things that don't really satisfy or that leave us empty or, frankly, can leave us downright sick. And that's, again, true to all of us. But responding to love, being created for love and called to love, that, that idea. It's where Jesus, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for being right with God. You'll be filled. You will be filled. And there's also this idea that love satisfies. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever, whoever comes to me is not going to go hungry. What have you been trying to fill your heart with? Honestly, a relationship, money, an addiction to kind of keep you from having to taste or feel at all? Your kids, your career, an affair? What is it? Deceit, jealousy? What's just, what is it that you sort of get your energy and attention that's not satisfying? Let me tell you this. Jesus' love satisfies. Jesus came for you. The Savior of this world came to be the Savior of your world, your life. And he invites you into relationship with him. He is the bread of life himself. And then there's this idea that for us, it's not just that we only own it and experience it ourselves, but that we share it. There's a, a video that will show at our, the end here. This is Kelly and Michelle. And they have a story of, of reconciliation about what it looks like when others get to be a part of this love feast. You probably have people in your life who, who need to be loved on, maybe who are difficult to love, maybe who sort of keep themselves at arm's length. 
And sometimes just being present and patient with people, showing up in love consistently, consistent, can make all of the difference in the world. And what if you, after experience or having tasted the deep, magnificent feast of love in Jesus Christ that God has for you, what if you invited other people to the feast? Take a look at this. When I told my parents uh, I, was, I was dating this guy, the question, what is his ethnicity or what is his race, is really top on the list, you know? And I said, oh, well, um, he's half black and half Jewish. When my mom displayed as much opposition when it came to Kelly's race, I was, I was really confused because that was, that to me felt very out of her character. I called up her dad, and he actually picked up the phone. And he just said, do what you want. We don't want any part of it. You know, don't call us and don't come back. And I said, all right. There was definitely a spirit, like, just a, a spiritual sensitivity that we both had to have. You know, Ephesians 6, 2 says to honor your parents. And if God says that, and we're trying, supposed to honor God, and God says to honor our parents, but what our parents are trying to say does not line up with what honors God. Like, what do you do in that situation? And I had to learn that um, God as my father says that we are all equal. Because I've even considered, you know, breaking it up because of what she was going through. But I'm like, I'm a product of an interracial relationship. Like, why would I back away from something that is really so beautiful. And something that I thought would be like the happiest days of our life would still be one of the most conflicted days of our, of our marriage. Like Kelly mentioned about, you know, we decided to do a, a larger ceremony um, later. And two days before, my dad calls me and says, you know, he'd like to come. And my dad meets Kelly for the first time walking me down the aisle. Even though my dad showed up to the wedding, my mom did not, and so that obviously um, didn't resolve any tension between my mom and I. During this time, um, Michelle's dad ended up getting a job in Oklahoma, and Michelle's mom stayed in Bakersfield uh, while she reconciled, uh, reconciled the house stuff and tried to sell like all of the, the stuff in the house because she was preparing to sell the house. I think God just just broke her, you know, and um, she was desperate for help. And I told her, like I always say, Kelly and I are available, Kelly and I are available. And um, she would always say, no, no, no. Finally, we said, Kelly and I are available. And she was like, okay. And we were like, what? Huh? And she's like, okay, you, you guys can help. I get to the house, I get out of the car, and this lady runs up to me, and she gives me a big hug, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is Michelle's mom. She's like hugging me. You know, she just pretended like we were friends and I'm like, fine, I'll take it. That's okay with me. Because all I wanted to have was a relationship with her mom and it was actually happening for the first time in Bakersfield on our way, you know, to, to help her move. So for us, this Christmas is all about reconciliation. And when I got the, the ornament for uh, at church, that was just the word that came to mind. Um, there was no other word that could describe what this Christmas is. We thought that we weren't going to be reconciled with our family 
uh, for another 10 years. And it just was one phone call, you know, one drive away, one door away, one conversation away from it happening. And, and so for us, Christmas is reconciliation. That's it right there, isn't it? I mean, that's part of it. That's our being reconciled with God and then our reconciling with others around us. Recognize in yourself that hunger that exists and realize that Jesus will satisfy that hunger. He will. And then, amen, just like that, live a love feast. I mean, just live it just like that, just like you are, where you are, with what you have. First John chapter 4 says this, Dear friends, let us love God. Or since, uh, different, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. And may God's love be complete in you and through you. We're going to end with a little time of worship here. So.